Hello, welcome to the latest episode of Data Unchained. I'm Molly Presley, your host. So a little bit about what this podcast is about. The paradigm for data access has changed. In today's decentralized world, getting data to remote workers, distributed applications, multiple cloud regions is a real challenge. Data Unchained digs into the challenges as well as the solutions to make data an asset as a global resource. Today's guests, some of them may or may not need some introduction. Um, I'm going to start with Trip Hunter. I work with Trip here at Hammerspace, but Trip, you have an interesting background in kind of a myriad of different um, activities that you work in. Can you give us just a quick intro of how you work at Hammerspace as well as with Adam? Hello, Molly. <laughs> Good to see you. Um, I started, I've been in tech for a while on the marketing side. Um, was came out to Utah with Fusion IO and then uh, and worked with David Flynn the CEO of Hammerspace there and then uh, migrated over to Hammerspace um and so I've been there for a while uh and then I also um am partners with Adam Savage on an event called Silicon uh which is held in California once a year and it's um a maker uh con um and and all the other wonderful things that go along with pop culture and science and technology awesome and Adam, of course, um, you work with Trip over at Silicon, but would you tell us a little bit about your role as a proprietor over at Tested and maybe just a summary of your executive producer role over at Mythbusters as well? Yeah, well, uh, I, I made Mythbusters from 2002 to 2015 uh, as a host and executive producer and made several other TV shows along the way, Savage Builds, Mythbusters Jr., uh, but in the uh, beginning of 2020, uh, I not only took over running my YouTube channel with my own team, uh, but then COVID hit and turned me from a television, uh, uh, an itinerant television producer into a full-time YouTuber. And I, right now I'm not looking back. I am so ecstatic being uh, telling my stories through this medium. Uh, my whole team went remote. It's only five, five, six of us total, five people on my team. Uh, we all went remote in, in March of 20, and it has been going swimmingly for the YouTube channel ever since. Uh, we've had our first three years now in the black since 2020. Uh, and like I said, I'm not looking back. I'm in here in the shop making stuff and making videos about 30, 30 hours a week, and it's heavenly. So that's a huge change in how production is done, right? You think about probably how you used to shoot Mythbusters and you probably had studios and everyone was together and now you're working in a completely new way um, with everybody distributed. Maybe can you talk just a little bit about, was was it technology that made this possible? What, what made it possible for YouTube from your um, shop to be a successful medium? Well, the line I'd like to draw is way back to the original pilots of Mythbusters, which Mythbusters, the pilots were shot in the summer of 2002, which was before much of the personality-based reality television we now eat, sleep, and breathe on television. Mythbusters, along with Monster Garage and American Chopper, was one of the very first three personality-based reality shows. And so we shot the pilots with six people. It was a tiny crew came over from Australia. We spent six weeks making three episodes and I'm convinced. And then when we started making the series in the beginning of 2003, again, the crew was only like nine people total. And that intimacy of the small production crew 
I really believe is part of the kernel of the success of Mythbusters. It means that the intimacy allowed us to tell stories that were very personal to me and Jamie, but that the whole crew was really involved in, in an abiding way. And that makes the stories feel more resonant. And by the same token, and I mean, one of the shames of television now is that no one will let that kind of happen. Nobody would greenlight a show with a crew of six people and a budget of, you know, a few dozen thousand dollars. Mm. Uh, it just doesn't happen. And I think that's to the detriment because what I'm finding on YouTube is the same thing. A small crew of six people making stuff that they really care about, working really well together, produces narratives that have a deep resonance because because the technology, both back then and now, allows us to work at scale with a very small team. What kind of tools are you using? I thought it was fascinating. You kind of shifting from the expensive production that you're talking about on television, the tools you're using. I, yeah. I think that would be worth spending a minute talking about as well. Well, so co when COVID hit in March of 20, our usual routine here at Tested is I would shoot a one-day build about every couple of weeks, and I'd do some show and tells. And each time a cameraman would come in and film me, and you know, my two cameramen, Joey, uh, Joey and Josh, are wonderful. Uh, and then COVID hits, we agree to go go remote, and my lead editor on Tested Norm set up a camera in the corner right over there with a microphone on it that I would clip on. And he's like, just push the button, turn on the mics and do this thing. And it'll, and I looked at that and I was like, I, I don't want to do any of that. I, 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 as a maker, I want to just be concentrating on what's here on my workbench. Just I'm sitting at my main workbench right now. Um, and so I thought, you know what? My phone has plenty of video resolution for this. So I started filming on my phone and about a year later, when Apple found out that we were filming our whole YouTube channel on a phone, they sent us one. <laughs> uh, and really, the the increase in quality of the camera that Apple has been, I feel like, one of the prime drivers of in the smartphone market means that I'm able to use this to turn out a really intimate product for the fans. And actually, I'll go one further. We tried out a lavalier microphone on the phone a couple of months ago, and it worked perfectly for what it needed to do. But when I watched the video, it took me two viewings to realize what was wrong. And what was wrong is when I set this up, and by the way, this is my, um, hold on, I'll show you. This is my camera rig. It is a phone clamp on the end of a wood clamp. <laughs> That's it. I set this up wherever I am and I adjust it to me. And then when I want to make a point, I lean into the camera and thus my, my voice attenuates. And that intimacy of when I was making a real point versus when I'm banging around the shop was gone when my lavalier was recording perfect audio the whole time. And so I learned something new about <laughs> about sound production and the way in which it involves the audience in my journey uh, that I had never known before. And I would have never discovered that on television. I would have never discovered that if I had a crew of six people here all the time working. Uh, it's only the the sort of privation of COVID that allowed us to see the ways in which we could use all these things around us to do this uh, in a completely different way.
you know, I think I'm going to use that trick in my executive staff meetings moving forward when I really want to make a point and I'm going to lean into the screen. Yes. <laughs> I think I will be more persuasive over Zoom as well. <laughs> so, you know, my, my first bit of media training, they said, if you have a point you want to make, what you should say is before the end of the interview, hey, if I leave you with one thing about this interview, it's this. And if you say that, they'll literally type it as you were, as you and say. And it will come out just that way. Absolutely. <laughs> So um, let's talk a little bit about technology. We talked about some of your cameras and your audio. How, how do you use data on a daily basis? That's interesting because I use it in two different ways. Um, I am cognizant that for me, my working process is a balance between being a maker on one hand, which is a very chaotic and creative process, and being a manager which is also a creative process, but requires a totally different brain structure. So Tripp, this idea of the balance of maker and manager and working with remote teams on the maker side, as well as on the management side, there's a lot of complexity to making small groups work when we don't see each other a lot. What has your experience been like both at Silicon as well as Hammerspace? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think what what makes it, it's one thing to be able to make uh, you know data accessible anywhere. It's another thing to create the relationships among that team and among that group. Um, and that's one of the things that that, that Silicon uh, is really focused on because our entire team all, probably only meets for a week out of the whole year, and that's during our event. Uh, and so, you know, we 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 really have to foster that um, the the relationship that keeps us wanting to work together. Uh, and, and, you know, that's just something that, that this new world we live in is uh, it, it makes it a little bit of a challenge, uh, but it's, but it's incredibly important that we, that we are always focused on how to do that. And, and, you know, to be able to reach out and and make that extra effort to say, you did a great job. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's so easy to do when you're in person, but when you're not in person, you can take those things for granted. How do you see that on your side, Adam? You're managing teams, probably slightly different teams on the different areas you work on. How do you manage your teams? What is your magic to making this all click? Um, the best advice I ever got about managing a creative team uh, came from Guillermo del Toro. I had just toured through the art department of Pacific Rim with him, which is like 70 people at desks, all making drawings. And I said, how is it possible that you have that you can manage 70 people doing drawings and keep them within some type of aesthetic framework? And he said, you have to give everyone total autonomy within a tiny bandwidth, <laughs> which absolutely like lit things up for me because that's actually what I always responded to as an employee. And that's what I found at industrial light and magic. I found every time I met an art director that I got along with, they gave me total autonomy within a nice small bandwidth. They trusted me to make decisions within this bandwidth. And that made me invest myself into the work more. And so I'm very much a, uh, I'm a hands-off manager in terms of how the job should be executed. And I try I, my I think one of my journeys as a manager is to be more hands-on about the feedback about what's working and what's not working and finding those new interesting spaces. I mean, at one point early on in working with Joey Famelli, my lead cameraman, I said, you know. I love the way you're cutting these. I just feel like there's a little more quietude at the workbench that I'd love to see in here. And Joey started cutting in these sequences of just working. And 
it became almost meditative. And now it really is sort of a signature part of the videos that we put out. And what we, what the feedback we get is wonderful because what people do is they take my videos and they park them on the side of their workbench and then they work alongside me while I'm doing my stuff. Fascinating. Was that intended? Did you expect them to do that? No, I totally didn't expect it. And the, the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, that makes total sense. I completely mm-hmm get that because when I watch, I spend most of my time watching other YouTubers build stuff. And every time I do, it makes me want to come in here and get my hands dirty. If you think back to the first zoom calls that we ever did, uh, how cold they felt, um, you know, there was just this distance and you were like, this is never going to work. But now I don't know whether it's human evolution or not, but there, but there is a level of intimacy that you can create um, that, that makes it feel more, um, special than it used to. And we do a lot of virtual events at Silicon and we'll have 200 people, um, you know, all across the world on a call with, with Adam or another, you know, famous maker leading people through a build. And there is that quiet moment where everybody's kind of building and doing their thing. And you really feel like you're walking around a room watching people do things. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's really true. I mean, I look, every social situation brings with it Pluses and minuses for being able to communicate, Uh, you know, too many people, too few people. It's too loud. It's too quiet. And we all have different ways of navigating these things. And I think, Tripp, to your point, uh, over the crucible of the last three years, we've come much more to understand the social dynamics of of a good Zoom meeting. Uh, and, and, and what generate how, you know, in the ways in which it can be generative and the ways in which it can be, uh, degenerative, you know, one of the things I thought was really interesting, I was working with a visual effects studio who, um, is, is wanting to increasingly engage new artists from all around the world, not just for talent, but also because they have new ideas, new perspectives on the way you could approach a visual effect. And one of the things that that was cool is they were using um, Hammerspace and some other cloud technologies to do the work, you know, to create the models, to render them. But then they wanted to get these creative teams together to, to merge the ideas into an effect and watching them on zoom and getting to watch that creative process with people who spoke different languages were speaking, living in different countries. And all that was bringing them together was this project and this concept they're trying to illustrate. I think it was for a Disney film. I, I, I believe that's who it was for. And it was fascinating seeing that creative process where the data was tying them together for their content project, but then it was a video experience like this. And they merged all these concepts into a single idea that, you know, turns into breathtaking experiences for for the for the people who are watching it on the end. It's it's just so cool to see. And that wasn't possible before. You had the people who lived in LA next to the studios. Um and those were the people collaborating. It was great, but yeah. it's even better now. This is one of the key the key ingredients to making that to getting to that in the most important part, which is which is the relationship and being able to work together cohesively and seamlessly like that. Totally. So how do you guys see this evolving? You know, the next five years as you look at not just remote work, but creating these intimate experiences for the audience that we're really wanting to engage with. How do you think things will evolve? Well, I'm sure that within 15 years, we'll all be interfacing with our computers through glasses. I really feel confident of that. If the world still exists, we'll be talking to each other using a using AR. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I've been using video technology for years since 2000 and 
13, I was touring around the world and calling home from my tour bus and having dinner on video with my kids and my wife in San Francisco while I was in New Zealand or, you know, London or something like that. Uh, so I've had a long experience with the fact that the intimacy is there despite the technology sometimes. And so I, I look forward to a point at which my glasses can render the person that I'm chatting with on the other side of the table I'm sitting at instead of having to wear something big on my face or look through, you know, this 2D interface where I can't move. That's my biggest problem with Zoom is sitting still as a, yeah, as, yeah. as a lifetime ADHD uh, a creator. Uh, sitting still is very difficult for me. No. <laughs> Would have never guessed that, Adam. And Trip, you work in a myriad of interesting um, fields. I, I, even some things you haven't spoken about, writing speeches for crown princes and interesting things like that. Um, where do you see things coming in the in the next five years? And this idea of bringing together the world, you know, whether it's the workforce or as an audience that you're really looking to engage with, or even your family and friends, how do you think these technologies that you're engaged in the different parts of your world will, will evolve? Well, my hope is that the technologies will evolve in such a way that will continue to strengthen the human bond uh, and not weaken it. Um, Cause I just feel like there's so much compartmentalization right now um, and there's never been more kind of disparate beliefs and opinions. And, um, and I just hope that technology can, can pull everybody back together in a way that, um, reveals the most important aspect of why we're all here, um, <laughs> which is humanity, you know, <laughs> that's kind of where I am. Is there anything else you would, either of you would like to cover about kind of the digital interface of these kinds of meeting environments? One thing I'll say is that, Human interaction is messy. Um, it's it's almost impossible to make it not messy. Uh, as try as we might, and within the professional confines of a good work environment, absolutely, we've removed a lot of the classic mess. But I I think that the interfaces that will that will will out at the end of this technology of being able to talk to each other remotely, the technology that's going to win is the technology that that allows for that messiness. You know, one of the reasons I think Zoom rose to the top over COVID was because it worked most of the time, despite everyone's different browsers and computers. And that working most of the time was accommodating for the messiness of the fact that a million different, uh, you know, machine languages are trying to meet on the same plane. Um, and like I said, you know, I'm looking forward to the AR glasses so that I can be ch chatting like this, but also wandering around my space because, that's how I that's how I that's how I would be in a real meeting with you. And it's how I am when I'm on the phone. And I, I hope for the video technology to allow for that same kind of uh, uh, generative movement. Yeah. Bringing in, like you say, interaction, your hands, your world outside of the 2D, I think is really fascinating. I, I was thinking about the first time I traveled to Prague and I wanted to share that experience with someone. I was there for work and I was by myself and I had my mother on the phone and was sharing, I'm walking across this bridge and oh my gosh, did you know in World War II, this city largely was untouched and I was going through all that. And you think about, that was neat. I had someone with me and yeah. yet you, what would it be like where she could see what I was seeing or my audience could see what I seen? You could turn and say, Oh, that on the left, that's that statue. You know, I, I, I think, and I think you're right, Adam, we're probably close. The, 
horsepower and compute engines to render all of this and the networks to share all of that. And you think about the satellites that are going to make accessibility to the internet from anywhere a reality. It's all just on that grooming edge. It's just bringing the data and the experience together. Yeah. Yeah. What the cloud has to go to space. That's the main thing. You know, I just did a podcast with um, the guys who are doing the solar sail, and they were talking about how to make data not available just in lower Earth orbit, which to them was easy. But now when you get far from lower Earth orbit, how do you make data available? Streaming images as well as other sensor data. There might be a little delay, but that's that, that that's workable. <laughs> but the best part is we take all that waste heat and we can put it up there instead of. That's right. That's here. right. <laughs> You know, if you think when at Silicon, when we're sitting on the floor watching, you know, Mission Commander Zhao Lindgren on the space station while Adam sitting on the stage having this chatty conversation with him, it was one of those moments where you, you're just overwhelmed with how far we've come. You it's know? surreal. Yeah. And it feels really lucky, right? It feels it feels totally lucky. And the thing, the reason I thought about the messiness is because what my child self thought of video conferencing was a much more like Stanley Kubrick button down. Love you, mommy. Love you, daddy. You know, everyone's in a frame. And the reality is, like I said, messier. Yeah. We forget how far we've come. When I was a kid, I was maybe six or seven and I wrote President Nixon a letter and I asked, I said that my mother was working way too hard and could he possibly develop a robot that could vacuum the house? And this was my request. And he, I got a letter back saying, thank you very much. Um, you know, we're working on it. And, <laughs> and so I don't Nixon know is they, responsible for iRobot in that letter yeah, that you created. That's the, bottom, <laughs> that's the bottom line. You were ahead of the curve, trip. Yes, I was. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. That's really um, a great way to tie things up. But I also think, you know, in these intimate experiences and, making it where it's real to all of us. One of the things I'm going to ask Adam, we are getting ready for this show and actually running into a little bit of browser operating system compatibility issues. And Adam was walking around his shop and he randomly picked up a sword and he had nothing to do with data unchained, but how <laughs> fun is it to get to see the process in Adam's shop, or I guess you call it the cave of um, putting together a sword and picking that up and being all work on that. And that was, you know, just an insight into this 3d real experience that perhaps will be seen together here in the next few years. So guys, thank you for joining this episode of Data Unchained. Um, you know, I think it's great that these are experiences. Tripp and I work together a lot. I've only recently had the opportunity to meet Adam and in a lot of ways we're sitting in each other's homes, getting to know each other personally, as well as with all of you who are listening to the show. And as we continue to evolve in these kinds of content productions and bringing video into people's homes. Um, we'd love your input onto other guests and the types of ways you'd love to see this experience evolve, even from a podcast platform. So thank you for joining. Thank you, Tripp and Adam, for being a part of this. Um, it's been a really fun show to have together. Uh, it was Thanks. a lovely conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained, powered by Hammerspace. To learn more, visit hammerspace.com. If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com. Mm-hmm.